Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. I get asked this question every once in a while and get into some deep discussions about why is the Fourth Amendment, why are, is search and seizure law the way it is right now? And uh, so that was kind of the the impetus for this. This is a like it's a fun topic. I'm I'm enjoying this. I don't. This isn't something that uh, we teach at Leah One as as a topic. Although we did do um we did do something up in Georgia not too long ago. Um, we've done some emerging trends and um I have a a fun little eight-hour presentation I put together for the folks up there, and we talked about what I called string theory. I'm gonna I'm gonna share a little bit of that with you today. But this is like a really, this is a a really good big picture, um, and it's a good explanation. You know, we don't we don't provide the the overarching why is the why is it that the law is the way it is. You know, we want to know what the law is. Um, we don't get much into the why. Um, so this will this will focus a little more. Um, on the, the why angle of it. And you can already tell if this is a very off the cuff, very informal. I'm actually doing this um, from uh, a little study nook in my home. I've got a cockapoo and a Cairn Terrier at my feet. And so if they see the Amazon delivery guy out in the cul-de-sac, you're like liable to get some loud barking for a few seconds. But um, like I said, that's the, that's the world we live in. I'm supposed to be traveling. I think I'm supposed to be in, um, I'm supposed to be in Virginia right now, but uh, you know, obviously that ain't going to happen. All of the live training being canceled, so we're uh, doing a lot more here online. So having some fun um, and hunkered down like everybody else. The the, the name of the the webinar I, I see, you know, how did we get here? Another way to word that is why is it so darn complicated? Why is Fourth Amendment law the way it is? Why are um, why why is it so difficult and, and complicated? And that's another way of looking about uh, what I want to talk about. You know, it's kind of, it's not unimportant. It's it's a, a kind of interesting point to point out that um, a lot of folks uh, don't understand how complicated it is. They, they think that, they think it's a lot more simple and, and easy. Um, I mean, kind of wishful thinking, uh, I think in a lot of ways, but, uh, but, but it is, it's very, very complicated. And, and I want to explain you know why that is. Now, after all, it, it is just one sentence, the Fourth Amendment itself. Um, but there are some really um, interesting parts. Of, you know, how do we read this? How do we uh, how do we make sense of you know something that was written so long ago? And and what did they mean? And and how do we? Uh, more importantly, how do we apply it? You know, how do we apply this whole concept? I want to point something out. Um, I, I know there's a way to have a laser pointer. Um, with the uh, uh, with this uh, system, but I don't know exactly how to how to turn it on or off. Um, let's see if I can find a way. I guess there it is. I guess you maybe you can see that, maybe you can't. Um, um, but if you look at the word unreasonable, you look at the the word in here, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. The, the whole concept of reasonable and reasonableness, which is incredibly subjective if you think about it in the true sense of the word, um, because what's reasonable to you might not be reasonable to me. I mean, it's a very subjective notion 
um, from the from the start, and it's baked into the Fourth Amendment. So the people are protected against unreasonable searches and seizures. And then we have the, the whole concept, the warrants clause that comes after that. Um, no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause and then the, the particularity requirement uh, there um, with the, that you know, we know that is a very important part of the scope, uh, scope uh, determinations. And scope is a huge part of the reasonableness. So, you know, how all this plays together, I didn't want to get into, I mean, I don't want to get into all this stuff with the uh, with the Fourth Amendment. Um, uh, you know, it's not my intention to uh, make this a Fourth Amendment thing. But anyway, I I want to uh, start with the la actual language of the Fourth Amendment itself. I'm trying to get my little my little tool back here. There we go. So I can change slides. So you know, we start out with the Bill of Rights, the whole concept of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment it wasn't anything really. Uh, revolutionary, no pun intended. You know, the all of the Bill of Rights were uh, pretty much taken from uh, Bill of Rights that already existed in the Commonwealths and the states, some of the various other constitutional documents and charters of the various colonies. And it, it wasn't a foreign notion to British law. The whole concept of probable cause was um, very much a part of English common law. It was the the way that they did away with it and suspended it and treated us like second-class citizens that made them reiterate that and stick it back uh, back in the, there to, to make it simple. And it was fairly simple. It was fairly straightforward. Uh, so now we're now we're going to get into the interesting part of this whole, you know, we had kind of set it up for you, teed it up uh, on, a, on a long tee. Um, it, was, it was fairly simple. And fairly straightforward, right? Um, and we didn't have a whole lot of Fourth Amendment law cases. If you go back and you look historically, um, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of Fourth Amendment cases. Now, a lot of a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, you know modern modern policing uh, is, was a phenomenon that didn't really take off until um, the be the beginning of the 20th century, and so we were already a more than a hundred years into our existence as a nation before concepts of modern policing, you know, were developed. But this is the biggie, um, or the initial big. There was, uh, you know, somebody asked me not too long ago. I think I was down in, I don't know if I was down in a uh, uh, Palm Beach County um, or Charlotte County. I was uh, doing some trainings for some of the sheriff's departments of around the state of Florida. I had somebody come up to me at lunch and they said, "Hey, Bruce." I'm gonna put you on the spot. I want to. I want you to. I want you to pick um, one case that you think is the most important of all of the Fourth Amendment cases that have ever been decided. Um, uh, and uh, which was an interesting thing. I thought about it. Um, 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 and this was number two on my list. This wasn't my number one, but it, it's a starting point for us. And so I want to. I kind of want to explain why the Weeks case back in 1914. You know, so darn important. Uh, Fremont Weeks uh, in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, with his, the, you know, those documents of the lottery tickets, and not not a not a legal type of lottery, an illegal type, and it was something that was the violation of federal law. So this and in, this involved federal law enforcement officers. Now, even today, the lion's share of criminal law is state law, not federal law. But that was even more the case. Uh, 106 years ago, back in 1914, and uh, 110 years ago, 1910, uh, but the federal criminal law was very, very small. 
compared to state criminal law. And so there just weren't as many federal law enforcement officers um, as there were state law enforcement officers. There was something that existed in 1914, um, however, and that was Section 1983 of Title 42. Now, uh, Title 42, Section 1983 of the United States Code is the provision in the United States Code that provides civil remedies for um, people who act under the color of state law that deprive someone of a federally protected right. So there was already a mechanism in 1914 uh, of deterrence. There was a system uh, in place to deter state law enforcement officers from violating someone's Fourth Amendment rights because they could be sued in a 1983 action under Title 42. But by its very, um, by its very, um, the words itself, by its very definition, uh, 1980, Section 1983 of Title 42 is only applicable to state actors and not federal actors. So going into 1914, there is absolutely no deterrent at all to federal law enforcement officers from violating someone's Fourth Amendment rights. And that's exactly what they did with Fremont Weeks. I mean, they barged into his house, they went into his home, and remember the, the words of the Fourth Amendment, those four constitutionally protected areas, persons, houses, papers, and effects. And they just busted open the door and they went in there. They, they, they thought they might find what the, these, these documents. And basically what Fremont Weeks through his attorney did was sue the government to get them back. Said, hey, look, they seized my property. They went into my house. Um, they physically intruded into my house. And that was a search under the Fourth Amendment. Then they seized my personal property. Um, and um, they took that without a warrant. And I want it back. And, and uh, the court... Um, you know, understanding that there was no remedy for the um, Fremont Weeks under Title 42, Section 1983, since they were federal law enforcement officers, the court created a remedy. It's a common law remedy. It's not a statutory remedy like Title um, 42, Section 1983. It's, it's a common law remedy, and they created the common law remedy of the exclusionary rule. And this is the first, this is the case where the exclusionary rule was born. And it, it only applied to state, um, I'm sorry, it only applied to federal law enforcement officers. It did not apply to state police officers. But remember, 1983 was already in play, the section 1983 of Title 42. So now there was another type of deterrent. Well, this deterrent worked a little bit differently. Um, under section 1983, you would actually sue the officer for violating your rights. Here, it was a civil suit. Um, the way the exclusionary rule developed um, after this case, um, it, the way it eventually developed uh, throughout the cases that immediately followed this, was uh, that the it was uh, it gave the ability, the grounds for a motion to suppress evidence, evidence that was seized. Um, in violation of the Fourth Amendment as a result of police misconduct um, is, uh, was excluded, and it was meant to be a deterrent. The, the whole purpose of the exclusionary rule is to deter police misconduct. Not everything that's taken and not every piece of evidence that's seized in violation of the Fourth Amendment is going to be excluded because not, every, not all evidence is um, take, uh, taken as a result of 
police misconduct in violation of the Fourth Amendment. And then we have the major um, exceptions to the uh, exclusionary rule um, as well, like an inevitable discovery or lack of standing or and the, the primary ones. But um, we have the birth of the exclusionary rule, which was a big, big deal. But remember, it had very limited, very limited um, applicability. Um, now, it wasn't so limited that it didn't have an impact. In fact, um, you know, we had once once you've got evidence that can be excluded um, because there's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Now it's up to the court to determine what the Fourth Amendment means. What are what are these violations of the Fourth Amendment? What is reasonable and what is not reasonable? I mean, now we've got now we've got an avenue for the the um, Supreme Court for cases to open up, and it and it they did. In fact, we had you know in the mid 20s. Um, I believe it was 1925 when the Carroll decision came out, and uh, that was the decision that created the that created the automobile exception, the very first judicially recognized exception, the very first uh, warrantless search or seizure that was determined to be uh, to to be reasonable by the Supreme Court. And, you know, the, like the the granddaddy of all JREs and. Um, it really evolved over the years. And interestingly, when the Carroll case first came out, it was the very first type of exigent circumstance because exigency was a, an element of it, even though that was eventually dropped by um, the court later on. So we did have a couple of cases. We had the Olmstead decision in 1928, where the court was asked to basically answer the question, what constitutes a search under the Fourth Amendment? And the court's answer was very straightforward. You had to have a physical intrusion right, um, of one of the four constitutionally protected areas, persons, houses, papers, or effects. Um, and uh, absent that, then uh, in, in the absence of that, there was no uh, uh, there was no search. And so it was very, very simple. The definition of a search was very, very limited and very easy. I mean, if you weren't touching a person, uh, their papers or their effects, or you weren't going into their house, including the curtilage, um, then it would um, uh, then it would uh, it would not be a search under the Fourth Amendment, and the Fourth Amendment wouldn't apply. What happens if the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply? Um, if the Fourth Amendment uh, doesn't apply, it doesn't have to be reasonable. So we'll kind of talk about that in a second. But this was my number two case. So if this was number two, what was number what was number one? Um, and my number, I think, in my personal opinion, uh, the most important case. Uh, the most important Fourth Amendment decision the Supreme Court ever decided was the case Matt versus Ohio, which is a very um, interesting case. It's only a little bit older than I am. I was born in December of 1961. This case came out in late October of 1961. I'm 58 years old, and Matt versus Ohio is 58 years old. So um, what I consider to be the most important Supreme Court decision ever on the Fourth Amendment um, is basically as old as I am. So it's not that old. I mean, I'm a little older than some of you folks, but uh, not that old, right? Um, at least not yet. Um, and so it hadn't been around. It hadn't been around that long. In 1961, just wasn't that terribly long ago. But this was the case. This was the case that opened the floodgates. Now, to be sure, the Weeks decision back in 1914 put a crack in the dam. Uh, it, that was there was a crack, and it, without the Weeks decision, uh, we might not have had the, the MAP decision. So I don't want to downplay the significance of the 
of the, the week's decision. It, it put a crack in the dam, but Matt versus Ohio was where the dam busted. Um, this is where the dam blew wide open. And if you don't remember um, uh, uh, Dolly Map, you don't remember the whole thing. They Police busted into her house in Cleveland, Ohio, looking for a fugitive. And while they were in there, they found what they believed to be um, um, uh, obscene material. Um, and so she was arrested um, for that. Um, she appealed her she appealed her uh, her arrest and and conviction. She appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court um, in order – her argument was a First Amendment argument. She was trying to make a freedom of speech argument. You know, We had a lot of, of obscenity and pornography and all of those kind of cases in the 60s and 70s, The whole, all those First Amendment cases that were coming about. That was her argument. She didn't make a Fourth Amendment argument, um, but the Supreme Court gave a Fourth Amendment answer um, but in a 6-3 decision. But the Supreme Court basically said that the exclusionary rule that was developed in the Weeks case was applicable to state and local law enforcement officers. And remember how much more remember how much more criminal law is on the state and local level. I mean, how many more arrests and trials and everything? I mean, the criminal law is just so overwhelmingly state at the state and local level on the so so many more cases that this was just the dam buster. And so even, even in the presence of 19, uh, Section 1983 in Title 42, um, the, the court said you know, that wasn't enough and that, that people should be entitled to the same protection um, through of the exclusionary rule for Fourth Amendment violations um, as it's applied to the states through the 14th Amendment and incorporation doctrine, that they should be um, entitled to the same relief and to provide the same deterrent um, to state um, and, and local police officers that the court put in place for the federal officers back in 1914, and um, they threw the evidence out for that. It, the facts are, ve are very, very similar if you think about it. They, they barged into Fremont Weeks' house without a warrant, and they seized, uh, they seized uh, those the evidence of the lottery tickets, those papers, and they, they busted in to her house looking for a fugitive, and uh, admittedly, it was a Fourth Amendment violation when they um, when they busted into her house. Um, and so, as a result of that Fourth Amendment violation, they saw what they thought to be and what she was charged to be in possession of this pornographic material. And um, uh, anyway, um, we now we've got the exclusionary rule. So, 1961 is when the exclusionary rule first became a tool for criminal defense attorneys and and boy and boy did they use it now there's there's uh we had motions to suppress after the map case you know they didn't even ask for that you know they they made their argument based on the first amendment and the court gives them the court gives them relief on the fourth amendment and then blows the dam open and now all of a sudden you've got everyone wondering you know what well, is this limited is now in the in the week's case the the he broke into a house um and, and and they the police busted into a house, and so the the, the homes of houses have always been considered the most sacrosanct areas, right? The the chief among equals in some decisions they've said, and um, I think uh, it wasn't too long ago um, we had the Justice Kagan talking about the this 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 how sacrosanct the, a person's home is, and how that includes the curtilage, and that she she said that in a. Uh, 
her her oral argument in the oral arguments and her questioning in the Collins versus Virginia case. She talked about how it was sacrosanct, but the defense attorneys didn't know to you know was this going to apply only to um, the physical intrusions of houses. Remember now this we're talking pre 1967, and so the definition of a search was very very narrow. You had to physically touch a person, a house, a paper, or an effect for um, for there to be a Fourth Amendment violation. And these exclusionary rule cases had only been applied to the unlawful entry um, into homes in violation of the Fourth Amendment. What about other types of Fourth Amendment violations? Well, that was exactly what was on the mind of the defense attorney um, if, um, for Terry. Now, uh, now in the Terry versus Ohio case, now you might not have connected these dots, um, but Dalry, the the Matt versus Ohio case, the Matt uh, versus Ohio decision, um, that was in Cleveland, Ohio, and that was October of 1961. And now, two years later, on Halloween of 1963, we have the facts in Terry. And you might recall, you know, one of the, truly an important case. It'd definitely be on my top five list um, because of the the two judicially recognized exceptions. But I want to I want you to think about this for a minute. And and I'm not here to talk about the the, the nitty gritty of these cases. I'm I'm assuming that you already know um, a large a large part in these, these what I call blue key cases, these Supreme Court decisions that provide really really important rules for law enforcement officers. Clearly, the, the Terry case is a, a big one, but what did what you might not know is that um, this was in Cleveland, Ohio, too. The defense attorney for Terry, and remember, uh, that's Detective McFadden you see on your screen, Martin McFadden. Now, he he had been a cop in Cleveland since the 20s. He had been a he had been a police. He'd been with the Cleveland Police Department for close to 38 years. He had been a detective for over 32 years. So, so literally since the 20s, um, 1925, this detective, this law enforcement officer had been walking the beat in plain clothes, just like you see him right now on the screen, right? They didn't have radios back then. They had call boxes on post um, and he was alone and he was he would walk around looking for pickpockets and other types of, of, of crimes against people there and crimes against businesses when he spotted a Terry and Chilton that day on the corner walking back and forth uh, past the United Airlines ticket office um, and the jewelry store that the Supreme Court made such a big deal about that Detective McFadden didn't give two thoughts to. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, what's the significance? How does this connect to the dot? There's a direct relationship to this case, to the MAP case, and that's because um, the the Matt case was decided in the same town. It came from the same town, so that was all a buzz. The defense attorney for Terry, and, and he represented Chilton too. He represented both of them. The defense attorney for both Terry and Chilton, he didn't know whether or not the exclusionary rule was going to apply to the physical touching of a person. Because remember, this is 1963. Cats versus United States is an, oh, it hasn't come out yet. And so the definition of a search is very limited, right? You have to physically touch a person, a house, a paper, or an effect. They didn't know. They didn't know whether or not the exclusionary rule was going to apply to the unlawful touching of people. So he thought he he thought he would give it a whirl. Now there's also other another little piece, a factoid. I want to, a piece of information I want to give you um, about this case. 
there a week before Halloween of 63, a week before what happened here, there was a very, very uh, prominent funeral for a, uh, a very um, long-term, very beloved law enforcement officer in Cleveland who had been killed in the line of duty. And so officer safety was really on the tops of everyone's mind at that point. It was, a, it was a lot less frequent back then than it is now. It was a lot more shocking to the community. The judge at the, 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 the Ohio trial court level, because this was state action, um, which is why it's Terry versus Ohio and not Terry versus United States. Uh, the trial judge had this, was, it was fresh in his mind that this murder of this officer had taken place and officer safety was very, very much on the top of his mind. And um, so if you've got these, all of these factors coming together and one more little point I'll, I'll throw out to you that uh, I don't know that you probably never thought about before and you might've thought about it in passing, but you know, officer or detective McFadden there, you see detective Martin McFadden gets a lot of, you know, he got a, got a lot of credit, got kudos, got a plaque put up in his, uh, right there by the Dynamite Burger, if you're familiar with Cleveland, he's got a plaque with his name not far from where Euclid Avenue and Huron come together, where they turned the corner, where he went after him before he shoved him into the Zucker's department store for men um, and, and found the firearms on those two. Um, he, he really, but I want you to think about this. Detective McFadden didn't do anything differently that day than he would have done 38 years prior to that. I mean, he'd been doing this for almost 40 years. And he didn't do anything that day that he wouldn't have done the same way any other day. I mean, did, office police officers were, were frisking people down, right? Um, they were detaining people when they suspected that there was some type of law enforcement uh, or some type of criminal activity going on. This wasn't a new thing on the Halloween of 1963 that just popped up. So what's the, what's the difference? What's changed? Well, what's changed is MAP. You have the exclusionary rule now, and so every every all of these police actions are going to be questioned where they weren't questioned before through these motions to suppress. There's going to be arguments that that everything the police are doing is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. If they can articulate it, um, and so the, the the defense attorney for Terry and Chilton uh, you know, filed a really a really good motion to suppress the evidence based on two separate Fourth Amendment violations. The, the detention of them, the warrantless detention without probable cause, which he argued violated the Fourth Amendment, and the, the warrantless pat-down frisk um, without probable cause or a warrant, which was another, um, which was another, uh, another issue. And so um, the, he's making this argument not knowing whether or not the exclusionary rule would apply to Fourth Amendment violations against people instead of against dwellings. Well, the good news for him was the court w was clearly apparent uh, or apparently um, willing to apply the, the exclusionary rule to Fourth Amendment violations other than just the entry of, of homes, also the physical touching of people. However, the court said that the actions of, of uh, Detective McFadden um, in both stopping, detaining them and frisking them were reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. And therefore, since it was reasonable and the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, that um, that it was okay. It was not a Fourth Amendment violation, so there was no violation for the exclusionary rule to attach to. And so there we had the first two 
post-map judicially recognized exceptions, and they're they're huge. They're really, really big. The Terry Frisk and the Terry Stop with that reasonable suspicion someone's involved in criminal activity for the Terry Stop and the reasonable suspicion someone's presently armed and dangerous for the Terry Frisk. So there's a direct correlation. There are a lot of a lot of wheels turning that are a lot of gears going on in there that um and, and things are happening that that you that you, you may not see behind the lines. Maybe you've never connected the dot between a map the map case and the and the Terry case, uh, but it's it's certainly there. Now another important point of this is that it, at this point the court um, is is interpreting the Fourth Amendment. You know to you know what's more important the warrant requirement or the reasonableness requirement. In other words, what is the what is the fundamental basis of the Fourth Amendment? Now, if it was going to be the warrant requirement, uh, if the warrant requirement was the fundamental basis um, for the Fourth Amendment and Fourth Amendment violations, then there would be no – there would not be any judicially recognized exceptions. You would have to have um, – you would have to have a warrant, uh, plain and simple, and some people read – the warrant requirement in the Fourth Amendment to mean that you cannot a search or seizure cannot be reasonable without a warrant, and that's the uh, that's one interpretation. In fact, there's some very, there's some modern scholars that argue for that, uh, say that that's the 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 only way to put the genie back in the bottle, uh, so to speak. Um, but the court didn't go that way, right? And now we we know, you know this whole concept of reasonableness. We've had um, we've had numerous Supreme Court decisions where uh, where the Supreme Court has said, now this is a quote from Ohio versus Robinette, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who you see pictured here, or you know, the reasonableness is the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment. So you don't have to have a warrant. And when the, once the court says you don't have to have the warrant for the Fourth Amendment to be reasonable, now and and you've got you combine that with the whole concept of of the exclusionary rule now. The, the the floodgates are truly open and things aren't so simple things aren't so easy anymore it's not it's not straightforward right we we've got this whole concept fundamentally what the, what the what the fourth amendment says is government searches and seizures must be reasonable um, and so uh, and reasonableness we know requires either a warrant or a judicially recognized exception so you have to have a warrant are an exception that the court the, the courts created. Only the Supreme Court can create the exceptions, right? And and only the Supreme Court can determine what's reasonable and 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 the the applicability of the Fourth Amendment. Congress can't determine um, the applicability of the Fourth Amendment. Congress can't pass a statute um, that um, contradicts what the court's interpretation of the Fourth Amendment is. We saw that in the Stored Communications Act. You know, we saw that shot down where um, in the Stored Communications Act, where Congress tried to say that you could get to you could get to emails that were uh, opened or unopened in over 180 days in storage without a warrant, with just a subpoena, because there was no reasonable expectation of privacy in those emails. Well, the the Congress doesn't get to determine what's where's reasonable expectation of privacy under um, that definition of a search. So that's a it became the it became wide open. We went from very narrow applicability, very easy applicability, um, to things getting much, much more difficult. So now in 1963, and then boom, we had 1966, we had the Miranda decision, 
um, which is a Fifth Amendment uh, decision. But a year later, we had the Katz decision, Katz versus United States, which took that very narrow, narrow definition of a search, the physical intrusion, right, and turned it into a wide open definition. Um, it didn't have to physically touch one of the four enumerated areas. It was a, a privacy intrusion by the government using any of the five senses into any place where it was reasonable for that person to expect privacy. So the definition of a search was radically expanded in 1967. At the same time, all this is going on. You know, what is government action? What constitutes government action? What is a search? What is a seizure? What does it mean to be reasonable? And now all of these questions, um, they're not really, they're not rhetorical. They have to be, they have to be answered. But the only, the, the body that determines what the answers to these questions is the Supreme Court. And so now it's, it's, it's hard. It, it, the notion is much, much more difficult and, and things are, are becoming much, much more difficult. And we're getting more and more judicially recognized exceptions at this point, right? I mean, we see a lot of, you see a lot of the blue key cases that are incredibly important cases, right? Um, that are dated in the 1980s, right? You see, you see the Dunn decision, um, after the after the Katz decision in the late 60s and early 70s, you see some as well. You see a bunch of different um, uh, decisions, but we're starting to see all of these different judicially recognized exceptions. The birth of the hot pursuit doctrine, the birth of the destruction exigency, the birth of the emergency exigency. You know, the Summers, um, uh, the Michigan v. Summers, and the Summers detention, which is a which is a, 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 a detention, um, uh, not an arrest, a detention. Uh, and that, that came out of that. We had the, the buoy sweep come out of that, um, that Godfather's Pizza decision in Maryland, right? The Maryland v. Bowie, the whole concept of that buoy sweep on arrest. And, uh, and we had all of these cases. We had an explosion of cases um, in, the, in the 70s and then in the 80s um, because um, of the, the the dam burst that started in in '61, and then and then the court's reinterpretation of of what constituted a search, and then of course it's a never-ending uh, type of thing, is it? Um, and I'm going to talk about that close to the close to the end. I want to throw something out at this point since I'm having fun with this. You know, I'm this is like a real uh, high altitude thing. The things that you never talk about in the academy. Um, uh, it, 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 it's fun to talk about this with a with folks who who already know Fourth Amendment law and 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 point out sometimes you're pointing out the obvious but it's not so obvious and then people don't think about it. I want you to think about this term and you hear this a lot. You, whenever whenever you see the word reasonable in the in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, the word objectively is in front of it, right? Um, and it is. And we see that you see this you see this exact term in Graham versus Connor for use of force, right? Why isn't use of force just really simple to apply? Well, because the standard is objective reasonableness. It has to be objectively reasonable. I want you to think about this because in, in the purest sense, what you're looking at on your screen is an oxymoron. I, I just, it really is. Reasonableness by its very definition is subjective. What you think is reasonable, what I think is reasonable might not be what other people think is reasonable and but they don't want this subjectiveness now remember this is baked in 
to the Fourth Amendment. So we've got to deal with this because the Fourth Amendment says the people are protected in their purses, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, which means searches and seizures have to be reasonable. I mean, the flip side of the, the same coin there. So, um, but think about this whole concept of objective reasonable. Objective criteria is criteria that is not, that does not lend itself to um, um, subjectivity. If I tell you that the speed limit um, on I-95, I-95 right here in uh, Nassau County, Florida, if I tell you the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, um, then the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. That is objective criteria. Any person who is properly trained and knows how to use a radar gun and is using a properly calibrated and, and uh, operating functionally operating radar gun will be able to tell you whether the person driving down the road has exceeded um, met the criteria or exceeded it. I mean, that's, that is objective criteria. How you cannot take a subjective term and make it objective just by sticking the word objectively in front of it. So what does it really mean? What does it really mean when to say that something is objectively reasonable? It means that you're going to try and apply some criteria to a subjective determination of reasonableness that other people can use in order to reach their own subjective determination. So a, an objectively reasonable determination is really a subjective a subjective determination um, based on some type of standard, uh, vague standard, to evaluate another subjective decision, um, which it, it makes things, it, it, you can just kind of go nuts and running in circles thinking about this concept. This isn't foreign to the law, and there's people that have been uh, commenting on it for a, a long, long time. We see this notion of these fictitious people, right? We hear about the reasonable officer standard in Graham versus Connor. Well, who is the reasonable officer? There is no reasonable officer. There's not a person, and it's not empirical, and it's not statistical. They, you know, they don't they don't get they don't get a hundred a, a good sample size for statistics. For those of you familiar with statistics, they don't go out and grab a hundred uh, officers who have the same degree of training and experience that that one that an officer has that's in a that's being uh, judged on a, the use of force and then put it to them. Do you think this was reasonable and see what all of these other officers think? There's no statistics. It's not empirical. The reasonable officer standard um, basically and and the people applying the standard aren't even officers. So, I mean, the whole concept, you know, if you got a judge or a jury that's determining what a reasonable officer would do, is that even possible? Is that even possible? Um, I mean, it's a it's a mess, right? It's an absolute, and that's part of the reason we have all the issues that we have, you know, with um, what with this concept. You see the reasonable person standard. We hear that from the courts all the time. Would a reasonable person believe this? Um, would it would a reasonable person believe that the evidence of the crime would be found in the location? Would a reasonable person believe that there was another person present in the house that presented a danger to them? Would a reasonable person um, believe that this um, would a would a reasonable person suspect that this person had a weapon on them that they intended to use um, we have this whole concept of a reasonable person which doesn't exist and in some places we have the courts talking about whether or not a region reasonable juror could decide and so and at that point all they're doing basically is substituting 
what their subjective opinion is for the subjective opinions of the jurors that they're evaluating. So it's a it's really quite a mess. It's a it's a it's really a double subjective when you put objective in front of the term reasonable, and um and that leads to that that lends itself to the confusion and to the difficulty and and what makes it really really complicated. Now this will probably um, this will kind of blow you away. And this is what I'm the, the last slide. Um, now I'm not going to spend um, hours and hours and hours talking about this slide. This is a one of the slides out of my uh, Fourth Amendment string theory, um, trying to explain how difficult how difficult this is. Now what you don't even see on what you don't even see on this image um, is the cats and uh, I'm, I'm sorry um, the um, Weeks decision, Fremont Weeks back in 1914, and uh, the MAP decision in 1961. Those two decisions were the Big Bang. Those two decisions are what laid the groundwork for all of the decisions that you see on your screen right now. Um, it was um, to, if, if that was the Big Bang in order, if you're going to use a, this kind of astrophysics type of analogy, um, which I, which I have here. And then if you go chronologically across the screen um, and you kind of work your way across the screen and you look at how all these threads interact with and how difficult it's become, right? We have the Carroll decision that came out three years before the Olmstead decision and created a judicially recognized exception. And so the court was already comfortable with the notion that you could have a warrantless search that was not um, unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment way back in 1925. So even though the floodgates opened in the 60s and the court started to do more and more of it, that was a result of the MAP um, decision. Um, it, the court had already done it um, before that in, in Carroll, one of our most important, that's the automobile exception. The Carroll Doctrine is the automobile exception. And then we had Olmstead defining what constituted a search. And then we had Katz determining or changing the definition of a search to that making it really really broad <clears throat> and opening up this concept of privacy which led to the kylo decision with the concept of the devices that were not readily available to the public that officers could use to circumvent the fourth amendment and acquire information with a gizmo that they couldn't acquire without a warrant if they had to physically be somewhere the whole concept of the, the kylo string of cases and then we had the Jacobson decision about the intrusion into REP. Once the REP was destroyed, it wasn't a search for the officers to go back in. Yeah, but, but Katz led to Jones in 2012, and Jones was, uh, it, when it went up to the Supreme Court, it was based on the mosaic theory. Only four of the five, uh, four of the nine justices embraced mosaic theory, at least in decision, um, although uh, Justice Sotomayor embraced it in concept. Um, but they decided it, and the, the majority opinion written by Justice Scalia basically resurrected the Olmstead definition. That's why you see that yellow thread going from Olmstead to Jones, um, and to give us two definitions of a search in 2012. So things even got more complicated. And then we had the Carpenter decision um, where the court um, shot down um, cell site location information under Stored Communications Act with the um, uh, um, uh, 2703D order requiring a warrant instead, determining that that was actually a search under the Fourth Amendment and endangering the third party doctrine. We don't know where that's going to go. Everywhere you see the little, the little red question, you know, question marks 
stop signs, we don't know where that's going to head. And then we had the, you know, after Jones, we had Jardines, we had the the Richmond decision that came out in 2019, where that's um, the Fifth Circuit decision, the touching of the automobile by the officers, a search under the Fourth Amendment. We saw the same thing, um, um, I think, from the Fourth Circuit in the city of Saginaw case. Um, the whole physical touching is becoming really, really important now. Um, we we have the out of Jard out of Jones, we had the concurring opinion that we saw again in Jardines by Justice Kagan, um, and then. Um, that there's a line out of that that ties in with Kylo that fed into the Whitaker case. We're in the Seventh Circuit now um, uh, to have a dog in a common area, even though it's not a search under Jones, using the dog um, to sniff at an apartment door in a common area is a search under the Kylo um, Fourth Amendment argument. Um, and, and then we had the intersection of the automobile exception with the physical entry into the curtilage from Jardines and the Collins case. So this is just... Um, and if you're looking at this and you're thinking, um, holy cow, um, this is this is hard and this is a mess um, and this is and this is not easy. Um, it's not. And that's kind of the whole point. That's kind of the whole reason I wanted to have this. There's a lot of folks out there that try to create these cute little checklists and these cute little, you know, this is all you need. You know, on one page, here's your here's your automobile exception on one page. Well, it's not that easy. None of it's easy, and it's 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 more difficult. When that, now you know you know how it is that we got to, this is where we are right now. Right, this is um, so these where these questions you see these red question marks. We don't know where that's going to end up, and there's a lot of questions. Um, there's even more. Um, I don't even have um, because I'm I don't have uh, seizures. These are just searches. Yeah, I could show you a whole nother a Fourth Amendment universe with seizures. And that would have the Rodriguez decision in there and all the post-Rodriguez cases and all the things we can and we cannot do, traffic stops, the things that are permissible that won't um, impermissibly extend the stop and the things that are impermissible and, and identifying passengers and all the different things that we do. Um, uh, that's a whole nother – this is just searches. This isn't even seizures. So, I mean, it's, it's worse. Um, it's, really, it's really, really difficult, which is why it's, imp it's important to understand you know how we got here um the thing is is that there's no putting all of this back in the bottle right we're never going to get back to where uh, we're not going to go back 100 years we're not going to go back to, and do away with the exclusionary rule and so the any exclusion although there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, argument for it we wouldn't have any of this we wouldn't have anything you see on your screen without an exclusionary rule without the weeks decision and the map decision None of these cases exist, and um, and it's a much much smaller and simpler universe. Very easy for officers to apply, but um, but uh, that's not going. We know that's not going to happen. That's not going to go away. And this is this is what we have, um, and this is is where we're at, and and so it's just important to understand, um, you know, basically how we got here, which is the whole title of of this presentation, where we're at and where it's heading. And I have to tell you. Um, it's only going to get more complicated. You know, are the courts going to embrace mosaic theory? We already have we all we already have decisions that are federal decisions embracing mosaic when it comes to um, when it comes to video surveillance of someone's home. I'm not talking about a Cuevas Sanchez type of issue where you're looking over a privacy screen to look into the area of curtilage. We're talking about putting up a camera looking at someone's front door. 
and monitoring who comes and goes from the house over an extended period of time, like you would with a stakeout if you had all the resources to do it. Mosaic theory from the tracking devices in Jones is very much alive, and it will not be long before we see, um, before we see on a circuit court level, we start seeing mosaic decisions on video surveillance, where we're conducting extended video surveillance of people. It's going to be the video um, that that keeps the mosaic theory alive, and not the tracking devices. Where in the world is that headed? I should have put a big red question mark up there as well. It's difficult. Um, we don't know where Richmond's leading. The whole Jones stuff is leading. We don't know what's going to happen with the canines. Um, we just we have to see. It's but it's it's one thing's for sure. It's not easy, and it's it's complicated, and you need to understand the threats. You need to know, you need to understand what the judicially recognized exceptions are and how they function. Um, and you, here's the here's the rub for all this. You know, I'm a lawyer, and I spend an hour and a half to two hours a day doing nothing but reading decisions, right? Um, and and it's easy for academics, right? It's easy for the law professors. Uh, who sit in the law schools and, and and teach one or two classes a week and you know get paid six figures to spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff, but they're not the ones who make Fourth Amendment decisions, right? And as a federal prosecutor, I never made a single Fourth Amendment decision, not one, right? Most Fourth Amendment decisions are made by cops because most most Fourth Amendment decisions are warrantless searches and seizures that are made based on one of these many expanding judicially recognized exceptions and so it's the, the the officers who have to apply this stuff in a split second um, um they have to make the they have to know the law because they're the ones applying it the judges uh, you know judge them in hindsight right after they've already made the decision the judge will determine whether it was right decision but the judges aren't even making the warrantless search and seizure decisions on the scene it's the law enforcement officers. So we've got this is what we've burdened. This is what we've saddled our law enforcement officers with, you know, the and the, taking the risks that they take, and now even more so with the, uh, you know, with the COVID-19 and stuff going around. I mean, the, at the tip of the spear, if it's not bad enough, you can get just shot doing a traffic stop. You gotta, you gotta know whether or not you're violating Fourth Amendment rights. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a mess, and it's not easy. And my my end point is uh, it's why training is just so terribly terribly import, important. Um, the training is just so uh, we we owe it to our folks to keep them on top of this. And you know you don't you I don't think you get enough in the academy to start with, if you ask me, because I've seen some of the academy curricula. And I'm uh, there's a few states I don't even want to mention I won't mention by name that I've taught in where they told me that they only get four to six hours of Fourth Amendment law the whole time they're in the academy. And that just, it's dumbfounding. Um, it's, we, we owe it to the folks to make sure that they're, that they're up to snuff on this stuff and that they're well-trained and maybe do some more roll call training or whatever we have to do. So officers, and, and, to, and to stop, and to stop trying to oversimplify things with these and, and, and dumb it down and oversimplify it to the point to where it's useless. Like you see in some of these uh, books that you can that you can buy where they got a one page checklist on this. Here's your checklist. Here's the four things you have to have before you can you do a buoy sweep. Here are the four things. That, um, basically, all they're telling you is what the court's telling you without filling any of the blanks. It doesn't do a do, do you a heck of a lot of good. We we owe it to the folks um, 
to have uh, training on it. And the, the last thing that I want to point out, why is it so difficult? Um, the courts don't make it simple either because the, the way they misuse terms. And the only thing I want to point out here are the levels of suspicion. You can also call the levels of certainty. Um, if you look and you see reasonable suspicion, which is where you're at with Terry, Terry stop and the Terry frisk, the, the mere suspicion is a hunch. Um, the, the reasonable suspicion, now we're getting into that objective reasonableness and the whole concept of it. You know, the reasonable suspicion, probable cause in the courts that have struggled, the Supreme Court decisions where they have struggled um, before throwing their hands in the air and say it's not capable of precise definition, which the Supreme Court has said over and over. Probable cause, that, the most important thing that we need, no, right? The most important concept and the the, the whole thing of probable cause of the, the Supreme Court's are throwing its hands in the air. It's not capable of a precise definition, but they, they often use the terms reasonable belief or a prudent belief in order to establish probable cause. They they say that it, you know, they talk about it's it's not, it's it's they can't put a percentage on it, but it's less than preponderance of the evidence for, for you lawyers. It's less than 50%. It's just a, a fair likelihood. They've really, really struggled, but they use the term reasonable belief a lot. And if you look at if you look at this on its face and you look at reasonable suspicion and then a little bit higher reasonable belief and then a little bit higher reasonable certainty, that kind of makes sense. And so now at least we have a working hierarchy, right? Whenever we see these terms, we can kind of understand what they mean, right? Wrong. Because in four Supreme Court decisions that are very, very important, the court has used the term reasonable belief where it cannot mean probable cause. And the lower courts have said the only way this makes sense is if we take this reasonable belief and we interpret it to mean reasonable suspicion. The, 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 buoy, the buoy, the extended buoy sweep is an example of that, where the lower courts have taken that for the extended buoy sweep, the reasonable belief that there's a person there that presents a danger to you. The courts have said, well, that doesn't make sense. Um, it's going to be more like reasonable suspicion. In the Gantt decision, you know, the second exception in the Gantt, in Arizona versus Gantt, in the Gantt exception where they said that you could do a um, a search incident to arrest of a vehicle with a reasonable belief that evidence of the crime for which the person's been arrested will be found in the car. Well, that doesn't make any sense um, to interpret that as probable cause, because if you had probable cause there was evidence in the car, the automobile exception would already get you in, which would make the GAN exception meaningless. And so the lower courts, the circuit courts, have determined that that reasonable belief really means reasonable suspicion. It's the this there are there are a number of very important Supreme Court decisions where the Supreme Court has used reasonable belief when they really should have used reasonable suspicion. So the court's not helping us either when it comes to this. It's it's incredibly complicated. It's incredibly difficult, and um and it, it, which requires us all really um, to stay on top of it. So that's a, you know my listen to me have fun. I've had a blast for the last hour talking about this stuff. Um, what are your takeaways from this? Well, this is what I want you to take away. The Fourth Amendment law is not easy. It is hard. I mean, there are, I'm looking up as I'm sitting here, looking up on my shelf at my six volumes of my, the fifth edition of Lefebvre with all their pocket parts and thinking there's no way in the world police officers are going to know all of that. So how do we reduce this? How do we get them the knowledge they need without reducing it 
to the point to where it's worthless by some little one-page checkout checklist or something. Um, um, it's it's not easy, um, and we have to, but we have to know it because the, our our cops are making a, a the majority of Fourth Amendment decisions and their warrantless searches and seizures, and the court decisions have made it more difficult. And um, the way that the the decisions have come out have ensured that it'll only get more complicated, and it's going to evolve and it's going to change. Um, um, and it's important for law enforcement officers to know that they make most of the difficult Fourth Amendment decisions. The warrantless decisions are the ones that are hard. <laughs> those are the ones that are difficult, and those aren't the ones the judges are making. Those are the ones that the, our law enforcement officers are making. It's important for them to understand that. I asked at the beginning of every all the LEA 1 courses that I teach face-to-face -face, uh, that deal with search and seizure law, I use polling devices because I love to get the interaction, interactivity going. And um, I, ha I have a question to ask in the beginning of all of them. I say, who makes most Fourth Amendment decisions? And it says judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, or law enforcement officers. And a majority, and, and all across the board, no matter where I'm at, a, major the, a majority of the people in the class pick judges. Um, and they don't even understand that they make oh, the overwhelming number of Fourth Amendment decisions every day just going out on patrol and they decide they're going to pull someone over for speeding. When are they going to pull the person out of the car? Do they know Pennsylvania versus MIMS, right? They're going to pull a passenger out of the car. Do they know the Wilson case? They're going to, um, you know, they're going to run checks and uh, uh, they're, they're going to get the dog to walk around the car and do the free air sniff. All, do they know Rodriguez? I mean, it's all very, very much on them to understand this stuff. And so it's incumbent upon us to stay on top of it um, so we can help them stay on top of it as well. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for joining me, and I hope to see you again real soon on an upcoming episode of Broadcast Blue. Take care. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.